Deuteronomy chapter 9. Hear, O Israel, you are about to cross the Jordan today to go in and dispossess nations larger and mightier than you. Great cities, fortified to the heavens, a strong and tall people, the offspring of the Anakim, whom you know. You've heard it said of them, who can stand up to the Anakim? So know then today that the Lord your God is the one who crosses over before you as a devouring fire. He, God, will defeat them and subdue them before you, so that you may dispossess and destroy them quickly as the Lord has promised you. When the Lord your God thrusts them out before you, do not say to yourself, It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to occupy this land. It is rather because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations." There's so many different ways we could go with that passage of Scripture. But here's the thing that jumped out to me. Implied here is that there are two relationships, two conversations going on. God's relationship with the tribe of Israel and God's relationship with the Canaanites. And there are two conversations implied here. One conversation is between God and the tribe of Israel. And another conversation is between God and the tribe of Canaan. Notice that God is driving out the tribe of Canaan. Not because of God's relationship with the tribe of Israel. That's not what the primary focus is for God dispelling and dispersing the Canaanites. God makes it clear, this isn't about you, Israel, how amazing you are, how righteous you are, how wonderful you are. This isn't really about you. This is about my relationship with Canaan and the conversation I've been having with the Canaanites. They have departed from the way of shalom, the way of peace, the way of justice, the way of love, the way of mercy, the way of compassion. They have resisted my call. My call for them to repent, to change their ways. And so I am dispossessing them of the land. Did you notice how often that was mentioned in the text? Dispossessing. See, the land is God's gift to these people. And with God's gifts comes a responsibility to be good stewards. Because God loves the land. God loves creation. God loves rivers and trees and animals and human beings. And when God gives these gifts and things are entrusted to human beings, there's a responsibility to be good stewards, to take care of the land, to take care of everything that is in the land, including the human beings that are in that land. And when this tribe of Canaan continues to abuse the land and abuse the the animals and, and the people in the land, God says, you've got to stop. This is my gift to you that I care about deeply. You have to stop. And there are warnings, and there are are calls to repentance, and finally God says, enough, you're out. 
dispossess, dispossess. You are being driven out of the land. You do, you are no longer worthy of this gift that I have given to you. Now, why do I assume that this was a conversation and a process that God had with the Canaanites? Because this is the process that God demonstrates with the Israelites and with other nations. It's not that God just wants to come in and destroy the Canaanites. Let's take the story that happens before this, is the Exodus story, where God warns Pharaoh many times. God doesn't want to just come in and destroy Pharaoh and the Egyptian empire. That's not God's intention. But again, Pharaoh and the Egyptians are not taking care of the land and they are not taking care of these slaves that have been entrusted to them. You are abusing, you are oppressing these Hebrews. They are human beings. They are like you. You need to care for them. You need to treat them well. And again, these calls to repentance. You must change your ways. Return to the way of shalom, the way of peace, the way of justice, compassion, mercy. But Pharaoh refuses. God sends a prophet. Moses sends a bunch of signs. And finally, God says, enough. All right, you've made your decision. You're done. You're cut off. Uh, Another example, Nineveh, which is the capital city of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And it's it's a very depraved and wicked city. Not just according to the Bible. There's extra biblical sources that attest to the debauchery and and, and just the, the evil that takes place in this city. It's infamous. And again, God doesn't want to just destroy this city and these people. God calls for repentance, warns them. But because of the, the wickedness and the depraved state of the city, there isn't a prophet or a religious person to be found in this city of Nineveh. So God has to send a prophet from the tribe of Israel. And that's Jonah. And we all know his story. Well, if you don't, go read it. There's a whole book called Jonah in the Bible. Very easy to find his story. And he does. He goes. And he doesn't want to because he, he knows how wicked they are and, how, and they're the enemies of Israel. And they, If anyone should be destroyed, it should be them. But God doesn't want to just destroy people and dispossess people from the land that God has gifted them with. So God warns them and calls them to repentance. And, and it's incredible. I mean, this reluctant preacher, Jonah, obviously does a decent job because the whole city repents and changes their way and returns to God's way of shalom. God's way of peace and justice. And God spares them. And here, well, when we look at the the history of the Israelites, there is just this ongoing cycle of God gifting the land to the Israelites. And then the Israelites, like the Canaanites and the Egyptians and the Amalekites and every other ite in the world, they tend to stray from God's path of righteousness, justice, shalom, peace. And they start not taking care of the land and not taking care of the animals and the people in the land. And God says, you've got to be good stewards. That's, your, that's the main responsibility I've given to you. To take care of the land and to take care of what has been entrusted to you. And if you treat the, the things and the people that I love with disdain and oppress them and hurt them, I'm not going to tolerate that forever. And over and over again, we see the Israelites not repenting, not changing their way. And what does God do? God brings in the Assyrians to dispossess the Israelites of the land. 
God brings in the Babylonians to dispossess the Israelites from the land. And what usually happens is the Israelites finally repent. You know, they finally get it. Okay, we repent. And God says, okay, I will let you come back to the land. But take care of it and take care of everyone in the land, including the foreigners, including the exiles and the slaves. We've been through this before. And once again, they stray from the path of righteousness, the path of justice and peace and shalom. And they start mistreating the land and the people and the animals in the land. And God says, repent, change your ways over and over again. And they say, no, they resist. And God says, okay, that's it. Now I'm bringing in the Persians to dispossess you from the land. And it's not about the Persians that they're so amazing or the Babylonians or the Assyrians. It's about you. My conversation with you, Israel, and now you're being driven out because you haven't listened. And that's what's happening here with the Canaanites. This isn't about the Israelites, how wonderful they are. If you continue reading Deuteronomy chapter 9, you read that God was about to destroy them about two weeks earlier. The whole tribe. Because they kept straying. In fact, Moses, I mean, consider the source, but Moses says if it were not for his intervention... God was going to destroy the the whole tribe of Israel because of their waywardness, their ingratitude. And Moses says, he prayed, he lay prostrate, praying for 40 days on behalf of the tribe of Israel. Do not destroy them, God. And God says, okay. That's a powerful prayer. You know, I've often thought, you know, some Christians seem to have this twisted, sick enthusiasm that other people are going to hell. I grew up with that. It's almost like, yay, we're right, they're wrong, and they're going to burn in hell, those abortion doctors or whatever. I'm like, that is really twisted and sick. Why not have the attitude of Moses here? Get on your face, prostrate, 40 days without eating or drinking, pleading with God, don't send anyone to hell, spare them, do not destroy your people, they're your children, oh God. Get God to change his mind. I don't know, it's just a thought. Rabbit trails galore, we'll probably get into a few of them. God is bringing in Israel, not because they're wonderful. God was just about to destroy them. This is about God's relationship and story with the Canaanites. You're not listening. You're not changing your ways. You're mistreating the land and the animals and the people in the land. You're done. We're driving you out of the land. You don't deserve the gift of the land. I love my creation. For God so loved the world. Right? That's like the most famous Bible verse. <laughs> I don't know how we can't all be environmentalists. I mean... John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Why not take that literally, right? (laughs) God so loved creation. Not wanting anyone to perish. Canaanites, Ninevites, Assyrians, not one. And the first thing that strikes me is, are we Canadians, North Americans, are we being warned You're mistreating the land and the people in this land and the animals and the rivers and the trees in this land. And it's interesting that these warnings have been coming for a while now. Like I do wonder if we're on the last warning. When God finally says, that's it, I'm done. I love this creation. I love the land. I love the people in this land. You're done. It's interesting that these warnings from God are coming through scientists more than the church. God loves the land, and God dispossesses people from the land if they don't respect what God loves. But back to this story. What strikes me is God has this relationship with the Canaanites. Has this conversation going 
with the Canaanites. And it opened up my mind to the reality that God has a relationship with all tribes, all nations, all cultures. And God is connecting and interacting and communicating with all people, all tribes, tongues, nations, all cultures, all religions. And that one stops us back. You know, we can usually go with the tribe, tongue, and nation, because that just sounds like a, you know, a good Matt Redmond song or a biblical concept, right? Every tribe, tongue, and nation. Yep, I'm with you. All religions. Whoa. What do you mean by that there? Pastor Troy, if I can call you such a thing, saying something like that. I grew up thinking only Christians. In fact, I grew up with only independent Baptists. <laughs> had a relationship with the true God. Everyone else, nope. Now, once upon a time, Jewish people had a relationship with the true God, but that was a long time ago. Now it's only the remnant, the 144,000 of us independent Baptists that have a connection with the true God. But that's not the case as you read through the Scripture. Like, God has a relationship with the Ninevites. God has a relationship with these Canaanites. One of the most interesting stories in the Old Testament, I've talked about it before, I'll talk about it again, is Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a a high priest of what we would call a pagan religion. A foreign religion, a foreign culture. A high priest of Salem. And that makes us uncomfortable. A lot of us, I can't speak for all of you, but but it certainly makes a lot of us uncomfortable. To think that God used a pagan priest to come and bless Abraham, the the chosen patriarch, who would be the father of the Judeo-Christian tradition, right? So we try and theologize the story so that Melchizedek is really just a secret Jewish believer. Which, of course, is ridiculous because Judaism doesn't exist yet. (laughs) Or we make him an angel, or supernatural being, because that's easier for us to swallow than the, than the thought that there could be this pagan priest practicing in a, in, a, in a foreign religion and culture that God uses to come and influence and bless the person that God has chosen to kind of give birth to, the Judeo-Christian tradition. Isn't that interesting? To think about it that way. God is obviously, in in that time and culture, there's this man, pagan priest, who has a connection, a relationship with God that Abraham doesn't yet have. And God chooses him to be the conduit through which God's revelation and God's blessing flows. Why is it important to recognize God is present and at work in all cultures, religions, and people? That could be a sermon series unto itself. But the focus I want to take here is this aspect of mission. Mission. And I'm, I think I've reached the point, as I continue to connect with other Canadians in the 21st century, that I think certain words are maybe not redeemable. And mission might be one of them. Because of all the the negative impact um, that so-called missions have had on the world. 
And the concept of missions is fine. It's just a terminology issue, language issue. Uh, mission is really wrapped up in, uh, you know, imperialism and, and the colonization of... Anyways, without getting into all that, I believe God's Spirit is leading us as a, as a church, as a tribe, to shift from this mission-focused mentality to a spirit-focused mentality. The mission-focused mentality, there's two parts to it. The first part is this, that we bring the message to this culture or to this religion or to this person or this neighborhood or to my workplace. We bring the message, we bring God's presence, we bring the truth, right? Are you familiar with that that attitude? That's kind of a mission-focused mentality. And the reason it's important to recognize that God is already present and active in all cultures, all religions, all people, is it, it shifts us from this mentality of thinking we bring God's presence to going and seeking God's presence who is already there. And that's an important distinction. And it sounds subtle, but it's huge. I go to a neighborhood that, in my mind, is depraved or, or completely non-Christian or whatever, and I'm bringing God's presence, and I'm bringing God's truth and, and the message to, to these people. That if I do that, I'm operating on ego consciousness level. That's my ego, because the focus is, is me and what I'm bringing. And nothing good really happens when we operate, especially in the name of God, in a state of ego consciousness. And how we shift that to spirit consciousness is it's not about us bringing God's presence, it's about us going and looking for God's presence in that neighborhood. And then to respond to what God is doing and saying in that neighborhood. Does that make sense? Because when we do that, what often happens is what God wants us to respond to is is by challenging us and transforming us. That's almost always the first thing that happens when we engage other cultures, other religions, other people, other neighborhoods. But when we have this mission-focused mentality, that that doesn't happen. Our, Our whole thing is that we are bringing the transformation. We are bringing what they need. We actually end up contributing to the problem rather than being the solution. The second aspect of mission-focused mentality is that, that they are in need and we bring what they need. So we have money or we have clothes or whatever and they don't and they need it so we bring and give it to them. And again, this is, this is based on ego consciousness because we're the, I mean, we're the good guys, we're the, we're the saviors, we're the healers, we're the rescuers. And what, what happens when we shift from this ego consciousness level to spirit consciousness is we are, again, we're not focused on their needs because the truth is what we think they need is an assumption and it might not be correct. It might not be true. What we're focused on is spirit because spirit knows what they need, but spirit knows what we need. And in authentic spiritual connection, which is a term I prefer rather than mission, Authentic spiritual connection, mutual exchange, and mutual transformation happens. There's always an exchange in authentic spiritual connection because that keeps the power balance. See, when we're coming and we have what they need, we have, we have the power and the privilege, whether we acknowledge that or not. And unacknowledged power is more destructive than acknowledged power. 
So the, the focus is spirit. Okay, I'm entering into this culture, I'm entering into this neighborhood, or I'm, I'm going to work, and I'm focused on spirit, not assuming that because I'm the Christian, I, or I'm the wealthy one, or I'm the successful one, I have what these people need, but rather spirit. Are you bringing us together? Because that's what always happens in authentic spiritual connection. It's not us, it's, there's a bringing together. And as you read through the New Testament, you see God bringing people together. Mutual exchange, mutual transformation happens. So when I approach this other person or this other neighborhood, seeking spirit and responding to spirit, we are both transformed and there is an, there's this mutual exchange that happens. There's a fine line between doing good and trying to look good and feel good about yourself. There's a very fine line. It's usually so subtle that we miss it. Now, some might respond to what I'm saying. These people don't have any food. They're starving. They need food. That's obvious. Just do it. Probably. You're probably right. The focus must be spirit in responding to what spirit is calling us to do. I mean, discipleship is about obedience, right? Obedience in the moment. Spirit, what are you calling us to do in this moment? And yes, you need to be willing. If you are really tuning into divine spirit, you need to be willing to, to give them your money, your food, the shirt off your back. And here's the thing about spirit consciousness is there's a good chance God's going to ask you to give way more than what you would if you were just on this mission-focused mentality. Because with the mission-focused mentality, you're like, okay, we've raised $1,000, we're going to go give it to them. It's probably not going to solve the solution at all, but we're going to feel pretty good about what we did. If we come with spirit consciousness, spirit, what are you asking me to do? Whoa, 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 you're asking me to do what? Move there? Are you asking me to sell everything I own? Wait, you've never said that, Jesus, that can't be you. It's dangerous to live in spirit consciousness because who knows what God is going to ask us and invite us to do, Right? Again, ego consciousness keeps us in control. But back to the main point. It's, it's, it's not about bringing God's presence with us. It's about recognizing God's presence already there, already at work in that religion, that culture, that person, that neighborhood, and responding to what God is inviting us to do. Moving on to Acts chapter 17. This is another example of how Paul engages other religions. And I, th- I think it's very enlightening. So in Acts chapter 17, Paul visits the, the, the city of Athens. And he, as he's walking through the city, he sees idols to all these gods. And it's, Athens is a polytheistic, uh, the Greeks have a polytheistic religion. Many gods. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, their gods are quite fascinating. He sees all these idols to all these gods, and he's, he's deeply distressed. And he goes to the synagogue. Athens has a synagogue. And he, he begins sharing the message of Christ. And there's both um, Jewish people there and, and some Greek people there. And there's some Greek philosophers there who are intrigued with what Paul is saying. And so they invite him to come to the Areopagus, which we call Mars Hill, but it was actually the Romans who called it Mars Hill after the god Mars, the Areopagus, to, to join a philosophical conversation that's happening there. 
The Greeks loved to have philosophical and theological conversations. I mean, this was, and so that, that's what's happening on Mars Hill. So they invite Paul, and Paul comes, and they are more than willing to listen. Okay, here's a new philosopher. Let's hear what he has to say. They're curious. They're intrigued. And so Paul begins by saying this. Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. So he, he begins by commending them for their religious ways. Not by judging them, not by condemning them. I'm pleased that you are so religious. Because your religion is your expression of seeking God. We'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. So he begins by commending them because they're so religious. And he continues saying, From one ancestor, God made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. And God marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek God and perhaps reach out for God and find God. Though God is not far from any one of us. So Paul then focuses on their common ground. God is the father of all of us. We have, a, we have a common ancestor. We are shared humanity. We are brothers and sisters. I mean, this was a major motif in Paul's theology. Everywhere he went, he was like, there is no us in them. We are one. We're all God's children. And then he, he talks about God being involved in every culture and religion. So that every culture and religion will, what does he say? Seek God and perhaps grasp to reach God and even find God. That's the point of the religion in every culture. And that's how God is engaging in it. Through your Greek religion, just like Melchizedek found God through his religion, some of, some of your Greek philosophers not only have sought God and, and grasped out to reach God, but some have even found God through the Greek religion. I'm reading an interesting book by William uh, Dyerness. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Fascinating book. It's called Insider Jesus. But he, he says, he defines religion this way. Religion reflects human longing in search for God. Religion is the particular cultural practices that developed to express the inbuilt human longing for God in the spaces humans construct to look for and even find God. So religious practices are part of the journey of seeking and finding God. Now here's the thing. All religion can get in the way of seeking and finding God, including Christianity. Christianity as an institutionalized religion can get in the way of people seeking and experiencing and being transformed by God. But religion, in as much as it points to God, whether it's Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or the ancient Greek religion, as much as it points people to God, it is part of their spiritual journey, including Christianity, the Christian religion. Inasmuch as it hinders people from seeking and experiencing and being transformed by God, it's part of the problem. 
But there isn't a separation between these other religions and the Christian religion. I mean, here's the reality. To say someone is a Christian says absolutely nothing about the spiritual state of that human being. I've met a lot of people who are Christians, who believe all the things that you're supposed to believe, I guess, as a Christian. They go to church. The Spirit is not alive in them. Spirit is not alive in them. And it's not like I'm the first person to say this about church people. <laughs> you know, if I was out on a limb by myself, maybe suspect. But it, they've been saying this for centuries, right? Because Christianity as a religion, unless it points us to God, the living God, where we experience the living God and are transformed by the living God, it's dead. I mean, what does James say in the Bible? Oh, you believe in God and in Jesus? Good for you. Even demons believe and tremble. You're in good company, right? (laughs) You're a believer? Who cares? If you're not seeking the living God and experiencing divine presence and being transformed, the Spirit is not alive in you. There's this new movement. It's been going on for a while, but it's it's really taking hold in the West, in Canada and North America and Europe. The spiritual but not religious movement. I'm sure you've heard of it. I'm spiritual but not religious. And I don't know where this movement is going. But in in this aspect, I believe it is a movement of the Spirit of God. It has condemned institutionalized, dogmatic, authoritarian aspects of organized religion. Those aspects that have been added on to the true essence of what religion is supposed to be. That actually hinders people from experiencing divine presence and being transformed by God. And says, no, we want nothing to do with that. We just want to seek God, experience God, and be transformed by God. And organized religion, including Christianity, has been a hindrance for many, many people. Many. And it's growing. In fact, I, I think we're living in a time, and I think it's good. I think it's good, but, but the church's institutionalized church and organized religion is going to continue to decline in North America. It's kind of like the Gideon story. 20,000? That's way too many. We need to get down to 300 if we're really going to do this movement of God thing. And we as Christians, we're like, whoa, the church is in decline. This is, I think it's part of God's plan. Get rid of all the dead wood, man. We need to prune this tree so we can grow. Get rid of, I mean, Carl Rana, the Catholic theologian, says that the Christian of the future will be a mystic or not a Christian at all. And the word mystic throws some people off. What he's saying is the Christian of the future will seek and have direct experience with the living God or won't be a Christian at all. And I say, amen, hallelujah, that's great news. And hopefully that will, will happen here at Avon Mennonite Church. This is a weird thing to say, I suppose. But, but if, if you are not interested in seeking and experiencing and being transformed by the living presence of God, this probably isn't the place for you. Or, this probably isn't the place for me. Like, it's one of those two options. Because <laughs> if that's what we're like, actually, we're not really interested in being transformed by the living God. Let me know on my next review, whenever that is, and, and I'll, I'll move on my way. Because that's what I'm going to keep pointing us to. I'm not really interested in upholding the dogmatic, authoritarian institutionalization of organized religion called Christendom, Christianity, whatever we want to call it. I'm going to point to the living spirit who is going to continue to transform us in ways that are challenging and uncomfortable, but we're going to grow. 
If you're not interested in that, then there's a lot of this. Well, I don't want to start naming other churches you might be comfortable in, but I'm sure they're out there. Where you can go and Sunday in, Sunday out, they will just tell you what you want to hear. Amen. Affirming my exact belief system again. That's amazing. I'm right again every Sunday. Okay, I'm going to wrap up very quickly. Paul continues, back to Acts chapter 17. He goes on to quote one of the Greek prophets, the Greek philosophers, Epimenides, and he was a 6th century philosopher, prophet, and seer, spiritual seer, in this foreign Greek religion. Epimenides said this, In God... We live and move and have our being. And Paul quotes that. Now here's what's interesting. This belief, this idea that in God we live and move and have our being, we now see that as a Christian belief. It's in our Bible. It is our scripture. But it wasn't revealed to us through one of the Jewish prophets or one of the apostles. That was revealed to us through this foreign religion, this polytheistic Greek religion. God revealed that to us. And we now, that's truth for us, isn't it? Is God present and active in other religions? Yes, it's in our Bible. (laughs) And then he goes on to quote another Greek prophet, Eretus, who said, we are all God's offspring. Paul is affirming that God has been present and active in this foreign Greek religion. And then Paul focuses on one particular idol, the idol to the unknown God. And Paul says, this is great. I'm so glad I saw this idol to your God, your unknown God. Because you're not going to believe this, but I've met your God. I've met your God. And I want, I'm here to tell you about my experience with your God. But the emphasis is your God. And then he tells him about his experience with the risen Christ. But to conclude, what what am I driving at here? Well, in, in engaging other people, cultures, and religions, I think we need to do this the way Paul does. He doesn't judge or condemn their religious beliefs or practices. He he says yes and. And that's the the rule of improv. If you've ever seen improv or improvisation, that's the rule. Yes, and. So if a bunch of actors are doing improv and one person says, I've got an ice cream cone. The other actor says, yes, and here's where we're going to go with the story. And that's what Paul is doing here. Yes, and. He sees all these idols to these gods, this polytheistic religion. Paul doesn't say, no, this is terrible. Paul says, yes, I see how religious you are, yes. And may I share something about the God that I've experienced? Paul talks about their philosophers and their prophets and their spiritual leaders. Paul doesn't say, no, they're wrong. Here's where they're wrong. Here, 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 here. No, Paul says, yes, I've, I've, I've read some of your thinkers and your prophets and your spiritual leaders. And yes, they have great things to say and I agree with them. And I would like to add, build on what they have said. The idol, idol, 
to an unknown God. Paul doesn't say, no, you shouldn't have idols. He says, yes, give this idol to the unknown God, and I'd like to share my experiences with your God. Yes, and this is how we engage people, other cultures, other religions. Not only that, this is how we should engage one another. Let's start there, probably. That's pro- this is where we practice and work this stuff out. What did you just say? No, you're wrong. Look, hey, come on, Paul. Yes. You know, you can even say it like that if you need to. Yes. And I would like to add something maybe that we should think about. Is there ever time to say no? Probably. But let's leave most of our no's to God and Jesus. And let's try practicing what Paul does here. Yes, and. And I close with this passage of Scripture that was from last week's lectionary reading, 2 Corinthians 1.19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was proclaimed among you by me and others, was not yes and no, but in Christ it has always been yes. For all the promises of God are yes in Christ. Christ.